Welcome back to Bubble Trouble, the training set for every skeptical large language model with the ever-critical independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's me, and the economist, author, music geek, and unrelenting statistics nerd, Will Page. If there's a bubble that burst, we like to think we pricked it first. This week, Will is just back from a trip to Brussels after addressing the august body of the European Parliament on media and technology and he does not seem too impressed with his first visit since Brexit. And given we discussed super stocks last week, this week we want to explore why so few of them seem to be coming out of the European Union and equally dig into whether some of the stereotypes about the old world still ring true. Back in a moment. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry? Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my up- Upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thank you for that introduction, Richard. Your reference to old Europe reminds me of a famous quote from the second of the Bush presidencies, George W. Bush, when he was to refer to France as old Europe. He said the French don't have the get-go spirit of the Americans, the business corporate drive of the Americans. And they went on to say, Richard, you'll love this. He said, the French don't have a word for entrepreneur. I do remember that. <laughs> well, W's command of the French language was limited. Let's just put it that way. But it's true, Richard, back from the Eurostar in Brussels, and I just, the most dysfunctional city I've ever seen, once described to me there as the Naples of the North, and that nothing works in Naples in the South, so this is the Naples of Without the North. Without the weather and the pasta. But one of the most, and then also just one of the most dysfunctional institutions, and you refer to Brexit, let me just pick up on that, I'll declare my political colours, arch-remain voter for the European Union, but to go back after Brexit and see just how much doesn't function it's like looking at an old relationship, visiting an old ex and realising why it never worked out mm. in the first place. I'm not saying I'm a pro-Brexiteer now, but oh my goodness, I'm not exactly rushing to go back. So I thought this week, I wanted to delve into that. We discussed US super stocks last week. Thanks to all of our audience for feedback on that show. Really helpful for me with my portfolio. Guess what I did after the show? Dumped it all into the Magnificent Seven. Oh no. Thank you, oh Richard. No. If I lose, you snooze. <laughs> But no, I genuinely wanted to ask this question, which is, we discussed super stocks, we discussed super tech, it's all American, it's all West Coast American. Where is the European Union in all this? It's a market just the same size. So I thought the first point, you're good with numbers, Rich, just illustrate for me and the audience, illustrate the gap. How much bigger is corporate startup entrepreneurial America then court, corporate, startup, entrepreneurial European Union. What numbers can you throw at us so we understand the size of the U.S. corporate machine? Europe 
is clearly a minnow in the global financial markets. And the U.S. now has six stocks. Six out of the Magnificent Seven are greater than a trillion dollars of market cap. Some of them close to threes. T's. With T's, yes, with T's. So Microsoft and Apple These aren't are so far passe. off, aren't T's far now. off. Three trillion and Amazon, Meta, NVIDIA, and, and Alphabet, the parent company at Google, are all no, well north of a trillion, looking up at not far off two trillion. Now, Europe has two tech stocks that are over 100 billion. ASML, a Dutch equipment maker for semiconductors, and SAP. But SAP at 200 billion would be only the sixth biggest software company in the U.S. behind Microsoft, Oracle, Salesforce, and Adobe. And now you look at some of the other companies that are in the U.S. market in software, take a couple direct companies of, that compete with SAP, like ServiceNow or Workday, and they trade at 17 times sales or 12 times sales, and SAP is only at six. So the valuations are much higher in the U.S., and they have so many more large companies. You have companies in Europe that are, used to be household names like Nokia and Ericsson, but today they have a combined market value of about $40 billion, and it's less than the value of one of the chip maker suppliers to them, Marvell, which is trading on 10 times sales versus Nokia and Ericsson trading on less than one time sales. So it's both that issue of scale and that you have so many more big tech companies in the U.S., and the issue of what premium investors are willing to pay for those large companies in the U.S. relative to what they pay for the equivalent companies in Europe. Incredible when you start thinking about T's, not B's. We've already got a handful of trillion dollar businesses in America and none in Europe. It's telling. Now, geographically speaking, I'm going to refer to network effects a lot in part one of this conversation. But geographically speaking, a lot of these companies that you cited are West Coast. A lot of them are Valley-based. Is there something to be said about when we refer to the United States of America, we're actually referring to just a small part of it, producing a large concentration of the wealth? I think that's become nonsense. It's really old news. It used to be, if you go all the way back in time, whether it was porcelain in Limoges or ironmongery in the north of France or silk production, Rouen, you know, you used to have these concentrations in a very specific geographic area of, of people who learned a skill and became apprentices and passed that skill on. And that, while it is true with a concentration in Silicon Valley, certainly since the pandemic has become way more diffuse. You have all of these global giant tech companies, the six that I mentioned that have a trillion dollar or greater market value. All of them are widely distributed operations with tech talent around the world. They are no longer just in Silicon Valley. They're in Austin. They're in Seattle. They're in Pittsburgh. They're in Boston. They're in New York. They're all around the U.S. And clearly, while there's been some controversy over this, a lot of them have employees that are working remote. And very happily so. So, mm -hmm. so I don't think that geographic effect is as strong anymore, partly because these companies just simply exhaust the hiring pool, the talent pool in those hot hotbed centers, the Seattles, the San Francisco's, the Austin's, and they need to find talent elsewhere. And again, these companies are 
deeply global. There are a lot of European companies which remain quite high bound and serving one national or narrow geographic market. And most of these U.S. tech companies have always had global in their sights from the get-go. Makes me think about tech nationalism, which is something we could come back to in part two, but maybe one of the problems with the European Union's tech scene is they talk about the European Union. They don't talk global. And the idea to protect European Union tech misses the point, which is we shouldn't be seeing these borders. Let me just turn to money, a topic that you're very familiar with. If you're an entrepreneur, you need an idea or you need cash. And Andrew Budd, friend of the show, often calls a disruptor somebody who hasn't burnt out all their cash yet. Because once they've burnt out all of the cash, you ain't going to be disrupting anymore. What size of checks does an American entrepreneur see vis-a-vis somebody in the European Union? That is indeed a fair question. Maybe I could twist it. Are the checks that entrepreneurs in America are receiving bigger than Europe, or are they just seeing more checks? Is it a quantity or a quality thing? Is there any distinction you can draw on that? So, again, I'm no deep student of the venture capital industry, but what I would observe stepping back and taking a slightly sort of higher level of abstraction view of this problem is that it's nonsense. It's an excuse. Now, it is absolutely true that there is inordinate larger pools of capital devoted to venture capital and investment in the U.S., and the attitude towards risk and failure is completely different. All those things are axiomatic. Fine. But all these leading venture capitalists have arms sitting in Europe. They have arms in the same way as Index Ventures has Mm -hmm. set up in New York now, a famous European investor venture capitalist has set up in, in the U.S., or Atomico will look... A venture capitalist which came out of Europe, came out of Eastern Europe and Scandinavia, will look all over the world for investments. I think that capital is globally mobile. And in the same way that you have sovereign wealth funds from Singapore or Canada or the Saudi Arabians, all investing in tech around the globe, I think that capital is highly mobile. And I think if there's a if there's one big difference, it's that because of inflation, because of the U.S. purchasing power parity, which you're very familiar with as an economist, the Americans are willing to pay more. They're willing to write larger checks. They're willing to fund higher valuations. Of course, that's led them down the garden path and into some spectacular failures, but they simply have more money to play with and they're willing to write bigger checks. The caution of European venture capital and the lack of unicorns or successful tech companies in Europe isn't just down to a lack of funding or a risk appetite. It's just hasn't been fostered in the same environment. And it's been a willingness of the Europeans to see their assets sold to others, maybe because Europe wasn't one common market of 400 million people, but a bunch of geographical markets of 60 million people in France and Italy and the UK or 80 million people in Germany brought it out to 100 million in the Dacht region, the German-speaking region. But those German companies never got out of the German-speaking region to conquer the world. So it's like Europeans are risk-averse about going to the casino, whereas Americans were born in the casino. It's just much more of a culture of risk and much more money to gamble with. They have wonderfully succinct and simple description from you, Richard. I want to turn to the lifespan of a tech company because tech companies don't last forever. And a lot of tech companies are designed or built to flip. They want an exit. 
And I'm wondering whether if you were a European entrepreneur working on your idea in Netherlands, Germany, France, within the EU, would you rather be in America because you can secure a better exit to the big boys? If the end game is to make those US tech giants even more gianter, not that's a word, you want to be next door to your person who's going to buy you out. So again, I'm going to call bullshit on that because I think it's an old world view. And I'll give you two or three reasons. First of all, there are literally millions of Europeans working in America in tech. They've taken those great educations they've had in top universities in Germany and France and the Netherlands and Switzerland and the UK, Spain, Spain, and they headed to the US and made their fortunes. Fine. And they certainly understand that that talent is there to be tapped in Europe and will come back to look for it. And I think big tech, while they have been scared of their own shadow in terms of buying anything large because of regulatory risks, and the examinations, the proctological examinations that come along with, uh, for example, Microsoft spending two and a half years with the regulators to convince them to buy Activision. They don't make big investments, but they're happy to buy dozens of small companies. And you look at a company like Google, just as one example, they have a $30 billion venture capital fund, Google Ventures. And so they're perfectly willing to take a flyer on startups. And for them, it doesn't matter whether that startup is in Rochester, Rome, or Rio de Janeiro. They'll go anywhere. So Google's VC fund, Google's VC fund is worth more than the value of Spotify, which is a European... Spotify is a little larger than that now. And you could argue, if you look at a company like Spotify, which came from Sweden, certainly Sweden is not a disclosable segment in their profit and loss statement. The business is around just under half coming from the US. So the fact that the company Mm -hmm. was born in Europe is all well and good, but they had to go and find their largest market where they could find the largest number of people willing to pay to, to address. So so just on the size of Google's VC fund, can you just give our audience a kind of flavor of when you read about promising startups acquired by Google, promising startups acquired by Apple, how many startups, companies do these giants buy a year? I mean, is it like every month there's a new company coming in? Is it every week there's a new... What's the rate of ingestion? And if you can add on top of your answer, I'd be keen to know how many make it, how many get thrown out. What's the ingestion digestion rate? That goes on in these tech. So again, I don't follow that part of the market in the same way as I follow the public companies. But if you look at Google Ventures, GV.com portfolio, you will see literally starting with a list that's literally hundreds of companies long. And some of them may no longer be with us. They may have been acquired already. Some of them have little asterisks next to them because they've been bought out or they folded into something else. They didn't make it. But it starts, the, the, the list goes from A or actually more with numbers, 23andMe and two, second address, 99 counties. But it starts with a company called Abacus and it ends with a company called Zipline. I mean, it's, it goes A to Z and it's, <laughs> it, there, there are literally dozens of companies. And then they also have something called Capital G, which is another fund which invests in late stage companies. So these companies have, by virtue of the fact that they generate $100 billion of cash flow a year, realized that a wise strategy might be to take some of that money and and invest it just like a VC. And they have some benefits to their own business because whether it's a tried and true model that happens in China or 
with Google Ventures. Cross holdings. They may have those companies use Google Cloud Platform or if Amazon Ventures yeah. will have its own similar portfolio and those people would all be on AWS and they might be promising startups that if they do invent something really clever, then they get brought into the parent. And it gives, gives these large tech companies a way to scan the environment and gather intelligence about what small companies are doing in case they come up with any ideas that might be the literal sappers that dig under their castle walls. Having, having fingers and lots of pies allows you to get inside information on what, how those pies are Yeah, tasted. and I wouldn't even say inside information. And, it's just certainly when you think about something we've talked about in previous bubble troubles, for example, that 60 or 70% of all artificial intelligence AI research at universities is funded by one of the five big tech companies. They want to be there at the source. They understand where ideas come from because they had a lot of themselves. And if you're not able to generate in a giant R&D factory like any of the big tech companies enough ideas on your own, you outsource that either to universities that you fund or to small companies. And so you're looking for to, to the widest possible net to pull into your own idea factory. And that's why there's such willing funders of, of, of university research, not just these VCs. By the way, if you get off the train at Cambridge and go walk towards the university, you will pass two enormous, very nondescript buildings, one of which houses an Apple Research Center and another houses Microsoft Research. So they are there parked on the outskirts of the Cambridge campus, just waiting to catch people when they doff their graduation hats and head on the train back home. They'll just sort of take a, take, have them take a right turn into their research centers as opposed to a left-hand turn into the train station. And for our American listeners, a quick colonial correction. This is Cambridge, UK. Not well, Cambridge, they, by the way, the last large parcel of land in Cambridge, Massachusetts, MIT University had to bid aggressively to keep out of the hands of Meta and Amazon both of whom were trying to build giant research labs there so that they could absorb some of the 2,000 or 3,000 of the graduate student hypercluster that MIT and Harvard spin out of Cambridge every year. Go fishing where the fish are, as Vanessa Beekwell once told me. Go fishing where the fish The only lesson in business you need to know. The grand stuff. Well, what I think we've done in part one is we've illustrated the size of the get. And in part two, I want to turn to what can be done about it. We can have a proper to and fro about whether the European Union is capable of well, We're not going to have a to and fro. I want to hear you rant in part two <laughs> about what you think Brussels needs to change because you went there, you had a preconceived notion of how it would be. It fit all your preconceived notions, but okay, smarty pants, what are you going to do to change all the frustrations you had from your experience in Brussels? We're going to get to that in part two, and I'm going to unleash the inner Richard Kramer of Will Page, I want to hear you rant about what Brussels needs to change. Back in a moment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome back to part two of this week's Bubble Trouble, where I am about to quiz Will Page on his brief jaunt to see the muscles of Brussels. And I think in the end, you were more impressed with the crustaceans that you, the little black crustaceans you eat with frites and mayonnaise than you were with the Eurocrats of the Berlin Molds in the European Parliament. So Will, first <laughs> of all, what the hell were you doing there? So I was addressing the Alliance of Progressive Socialists who are leading the charge on anything to do with music, copyright, intellectual property, on a bunch of the concerns they have. So I addressed the parliament, then a working group, quite an honour to do so. But things such as, what is AI going to do to the arts? You take that as a big umbrella question mm. and it opens up a huge can of worms. But do these people actually understand what AI can and can't do? What it's already doing? Are we just catching up with an issue that's been around for many years? That type of dialogue. So it's, Obviously, a lot of concerns around what big tech is doing to the arts. I was there to address those concerns. And and how well-informed was your audience? I mean, I know you talk to a lot of audiences. Sometimes you're the, the guest speaker who's just there to provoke and ask some interesting questions. Other times you're talking to a room full of music nerds and rockonomists and you're speaking to your tribe. How well-informed were those Brussels policymakers about issues like copyright and the division of spoils for creator economies? Not well at all. <laughs> really? Really? <laughs> elementary school level is really quite a shock to see how you take an issue such as we need to make the algorithm transparent. Okay, that's politically appealing. There's these big tech companies and they have big algorithms and the way that we're going to tackle these big tech companies is to make these algorithms transparent. Do you know what happens if you make an algorithm transparent? You make it very easy to game. What is the purpose of this policy again? And by the way, the algorithm belongs to the company. It's intellectual property. You can't open that up. And even if you did, would you even understand what it does? Mm. Do you understand what nine years of machine learning stacked on top of stack of stack just is baffling to hear some of the rather left of center policy suggestions that they're mulling over in Brussels and think, what is the problem you're trying to solve? That's the lesson that you learn when you work in tech. What is the problem you're trying to solve? And does this course of action do anything in a way of solving it? Now, they've just passed a major piece of legislation in Europe, the Digital Markets Act. And we have seen yeah. for the last five or six or eight years, a very high profile Danish politician, Marguerite Versteger, become the champion of Europe taking on big tech. And this is really a signature policy driven by her and other folks at the European Union saying, we want to identify certain big companies as gatekeepers and we want to regulate them. How well is that going to go? I mean, do you think these policymakers are better informed 
when it comes to this Digital Markets Act? Will it work? Will it become a blueprint for what regulation ought to happen in the U.S.? Well, I'll tip my hat to Margot Vestager. I admire her policy acumen, her political motivations. I think a potential European commissioner in waiting right there. But when, she say, when you say she wants to take on big tech, she, it does. Let's bring tech nationalism into part two of the conversation. It is to take on big US tech. Mm-hmm. Do you think she's going to break up the Danish darling Novo Nordisk? Mm-hmm. Nope. Whose you, biggest you, end market, it, of course, is in the US. And I mean that in several different ways, because obviously the U.S. has one of the highest populations of obese and overweight people. And Novo Nordisk's blockbuster new drug is one that will help combat obesity with a simple pill. It makes it sound pretty easy. And we're four minutes into part two, which is time for a quick joke. Richard, do you know how bad obesity is in America? <clears throat> it's a big problem, Will. It's so big that two-thirds of the population is about to become four-fifths. Oh, Ouch. Sorry, Ouch. economists shouldn't write jokes. Ouch, absolutely but not. You, let's wheel back to that purpose there. What is the problem you're trying to solve? Is it a problem of big tech or is it a European Union's perceived problems of big US tech? And if it's the latter, mm. then we've taken the eye off the ball of how markets work. And now we're thinking about how do institutions protect? And that's a different question. And that produces a different answer. Well, what um, isn't there uh, is, but let me interject there because I think there are some legitimate social concerns about the way in which big tech has competed, whether it is exclusionary behavior, whether it has foreclosed certain markets or behaved in a way which would contravene antitrust rules. And isn't this DMA trying to lay out a set of principles of which companies ought to be subject to regulation, which companies they can identify have market power? There were a couple of European companies on that list, but it's true. The vast majority of those were U.S. But is that effort itself misguided? Well, I think it is. And we can give you a couple of examples relating to two of the big U.S. tech giants. We look at the regulation around YouTube. Yeah, that was seen as a political victory, but quite often political victories lead to economic failures. In the small print of how they're trying to regulate YouTube with the DMCA Act, the user-generated content issues was that video streaming platforms have to have proportionate investment in notice and takedown and content ID technologies. So what you then say is to any promising European video streaming startup, you have to invest the same scale that YouTube is in all that wonderful content ID technology they have. That in itself creates a barrier to entry. Is it the same scale or is it if it's 5% of YouTube's revenue that they would invest in that. Why shouldn't it be 5% of anyone's revenue? Wouldn't it be much higher percentage because YouTube presumably Richie gets baby, it's called a Richie baby, it's called a first mover advantage. America gets there first. Right. So regulatory capture becomes regulatory catch up. You're constantly fighting yesterday's war. And that's where I just think you look at the in-app purchase debate that's going on just now. In the law, it says Apple has to monitor the transactions that happen on their platform. Well, that sends a 10-year debate about the Apple tax, the in-app purchase fees, into another 10-year holding pattern. What do you want to do tomorrow? Walk around the corridors of Brussels with big PDF files printed out, carrying in lever arch folders, or actually generate value? And I just, I don't know, the frustration for me is I just saw one big, humongous holding pattern in front of my eyes. Mm. And I've forgotten just how dysfunctional it, it, it is. It's just, 
But oh. what are you achieving to move forward as opposed to using regulation as a way of holding things back? So let me not to defend this giant holding pattern, but you know, a friend of the friend of ours, friend of the show, Scott Galloway, recently made the point that there have been 40 hearings in the US with grandstanding, fulminating, and absolutely vituperative commentary <laughs> from politicians about the ills and terrible antitrust violations and all of this about social media and big tech and a total of zero pieces of legislation passed. So is this paralysis of the legislators trying to catch up with the warp speed at which tech moves? Not a problem that's well, universal. And then let me throw one other thing out there because Europe has passed as misguided or ill-informed as it might be, has passed legislation about AI and how it's supposed to work. But that legislation hasn't happened in the U.S. yet, despite, again, lots of hearings and hand-wringing and, and thundering speeches from various Congress people. Now, let me come on two fronts there. Firstly, in terms of regulation achieving so little, a longtime mentor in my career was Adam Singer, ran FlexiTech, cable and wireless, various huge companies. And he always had this wonderful remark about the UK regulator, which is called Ofcom, mm -hmm. our equivalent of the FCC in America. He said, Ofcom is forever trying to regulate companies that are desperately trying to put themselves out of business. That is, where the attention is placed by the regulators, often on old companies who are dying anyway. So look, I'm doing this really good job at regulating a dying industry or a dying vertical or a dying institution and not very good at capturing new companies and the future. So I think that applies to what I saw in the European Commission. Then when you turn your issues to like things like the AI Act, well, one of the questions I posed to the European Parliament was, how does reciprocity work? Let's take my world of intellectual property and copyright. We have reciprocity. If you exploit American repertoire in Britain, we collect that money, we send it back to America. If you exploit British repertoire in America, you collect that money and send it back to Britain. We trade in intellectual property. That's the rules. But there's trade disputes, and that's not uncommon. What's stopping the Americans working out a way of A, putting intellectual property around AI, B, creating a license for it, C, generating the money for it, and D, not having to share it with anyone else? When I threw that at the audience in Brussels, there was a lot of face palms. That's for me is a real risk. If you want to actually work on policy for the future, deal with things like that. If AI is going to generate a huge amount of wealth and a huge amount of that wealth needs to trickle down to the creators who help generate that wealth, where's the international trading patterns that are going to govern it? Or we're we going to get one country just breaking rank and scooping the pot. That for me would be a genuine concern to debate. It's and you think in none of the AI legislation that's been passed in Europe that it reflects the likely trade patterns, or is it just trying to safeguard the populace against all the deep fakes we're going to get going into the election seasons? The lawyers will say, oh, we have footnotes in place to cover Will's point. He's off on one. Just don't be naive to how trade disputes happen. And it is entirely plausible that one country will break rank and say, this isn't a threat. This is an opportunity. This isn't chaos. This is monetizable draft up some way of monetizing AI in the business sphere and in the consumer sphere and keep all the cash. This is a new world. And, and that for me would be a far more productive conversation 
than regulating industries which are 10 years out of date, which seems to be what happens. Well, I, again, I got to push back against that because the fact that the EU rushed out and inculcated AI legislation was a case where they didn't wait for a decade till after the not only the horse had bolted, the barn door was wide open and the horse was actually in the next county at that point. They're trying to do something. It's just a very fast moving field. But I want to switch gears a little bit here. I want to throw over to the Dura Scotsman what the hell he would do. Okay, let's imagine that your Bonnie Scots secede from the UK and rejoin the EU, which I think about 70 or 80% of Scots would much rather align themselves with Europe where the food is a lot better and they all like to go on holiday than align themselves with the English. But let's say you rejoin and they ring up and as your patriotic duty as a good European, they call upon Scottish economist Will Page to go over there and give them some good ideas of how to fix things. So what are your constructive suggestions before we get to the smoke signals about the terrible verbiage you heard in the corridors of Brussels? Was it Margaret Thatcher who said, if you make it easier to fire, it becomes easier to hire? A very controversial statement, but I think broadly speaking, it's borne out to be true. So labor market flexibility, fine. And I'm going to take this into A, the private sector, but B, I also want to address the institutional malaise that I witnessed. But in the private sector, why is there so many French middle-class Parisians working in London? Because the French labor market's net job creation has basically been flat for decades. Whereas in the UK, we genuinely create jobs. We lose a lot of jobs. We have a lot of issues. Everyone has a lot of issues. But net job creation is big in this country. It's less big in old labor markets that you'll see in Europe. I think that's something which... Europe needs to master. Okay, I'll say but, that for France. I can speak of good... I can honestly say Spain has this dilemma as well. You know that term lifers? Yep. When you have companies, you have people who work there for life. Lifers is the rule as opposed to exception in, in Europe. It's the exception as opposed to the rule here in the UK. Right. And for good reason. People move around. If you're ambitious, come to Britain and make your start. But, we compete, but, Richard, for human capital. That's fine. But Will, I would argue at the moment, the UK is clearly, like many European countries tied up in knots over this because they have many unfilled positions. The UK also has done something that the continent has not, which is they have a lot of these zero hours contracts where the workers don't have rights and people can't really make a good living off of a basic type of job. But alongside that, you say compete for labor. Why do we have 50 or 100,000 job vacancies in the NHS in the UK? We're just not getting the labor because we haven't resolved the migration issue. And certainly the single yeah. market in Europe opened that up and did allow a lot of movement, which you have to, I think we'd agree was a massive net positive. Yeah. If you have a flexible labor market and access to that European labor pool, that's a double win. You, that, that allows the economy to function better. Let me turn my firepower to the institutional malaise as well. Let's just talk about money, European money, the single European currency created in 1997, 98, mm -hmm. and actually came into fruition on the turn of the millennium. Yeah. The European Central Bank employs a lot of people, but the Bundesbank employs even more people. European Central Bank auctions money, sets base rates, manages financial markets. What does the Bundesbank do? What does the French National Bank do? What does the Belgian National Bank do? What does the Dutch National Bank do if it doesn't do the basic functions of the European Central Bank, which is already in place? 
the headcount for the Bundesbank, I think, is six and a half to 7,000 full-time employees. And what I'm trying to do here is this is the tip of the iceberg of just institutional malaise. You have so many public sector institutions with so much job security who basically do nothing. And in the European Commission, I learned of this department called Human Resources. If you're useless in the European Commission, they don't fire you. They just move you to human resources. Richard, we're talking about five and a half thousand people who do nothing for a living. Right. It was absolutely absurd. Gorgeous pensions, very favorable tax. Just keep your head down, stare at your shoes and do nothing for 30 years and cash out your chips. It's, I don't know, I would be like Scarface, say hello to my little friend. Like, if you want to get Europe working, get the people in Europe to do some actual work. Because that job security thing is just a strange one. It takes out ambition. Mm. It breeds mediocrity. I, I never felt so distant. And last rant, last rant, and this has been going on for decades. They still move the entire charade of the European Parliament to Strasbourg to vote. Right. So you have one Death Star building that is slightly less attractive than the Death Star in Brussels. And you have another Death Star building in Strasbourg. And for, I think it works out as four days for 10 weeks of the year. So 40 days out of 365, the entire operation moves to Strasbourg no, to vote. No, and they move the entire operation back. And you're talking to me about ESG properties? Yes. Hold on a yeah. second. And, and I think what famously there was once a point where they were looking at setting up the European Culinary Institute. And instead of putting it on the border between Italy and France... And splitting the bill or and having a short hop over to Spain, they put it, I think, in Finland. But anyhow, there you go. But no, that, stress, that stressful thing, any sane person would look at that and just say, no, somebody's taken a stupid pill here. Okay. That can't be happening in 2024. Okay. So you did go to Brussels in 2024. But I am not a Brexiteer. I am not a Brexiteer. Absolutely. We just, all I'm love just, Europe. And I'm we, a baffled Romina. Yeah. And, <laughs> and we all wish Europe just could have gotten that little bit more efficient to, to bring, bring, keep you, the UK, in the fold. As someone who has both a UK and a European passport now, I feel that I feel your oh, wow. pain. Now, I got to ask you, having just been there, the smoke signals, the couple of phrases or the introduction by the parliamentarians, the few things that stuck in your mind of those uh-oh moments, like whatever mad science I drop on these folks in this parliament building, august as it is, there's nothing's going to go through going to retain. There's no purchase here for my ideas. What are the things that got you well, worried? Well, like, you, you, European culture can't thrive unless we make all the algorithms transparent. How does A lead to B? I got a couple for you. One is just the bit that makes me cringe is when the European Union talks now and back then when I studied this at university, like we're all in it together. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. Was it Juncker, the former president of the European Commission, when he ran Luxembourg, those letters got released of what he was saying to American tech companies? Come to Luxembourg. We don't even know how to spell capital gains tech. Yeah. We're not all in it together. There's, it competes, not in the same way that states within the United States of America competes, but there's clear competition. There's clear no, I, I think that's a perfectly good analogy because whether you have Sager having a lengthy case against Ireland as to whether their super low tax rate constituted state aid for Apple, or you have North Dakota or others or Delaware or other states in the U.S. that offer super favorable environments for corporations to list and do business and 
turn a blind eye to all sorts of disclosure requirements, I think you have the exact same sort of race to the bottom. And in, in Europe, it's between Luxembourg, Switzerland, and, the yeah. Netherlands, and I know Switzerland's outside the EU, Ireland, et cetera. And you have others, Portugal, horning in on it and saying, well, we can be a mini Ireland. And it is indeed that race to the bottom to curry favor with big companies. You have race to the bottom on tax to curry flavor with the big boys, potentially the big US boys that you want to bring their wealth into the country. But equally, this race to the top in regulation. If you're lucky enough to join this rich countries club, you can impose regulation mm. that keeps poor countries who are outside the club out. And from a farming background, I'm well aware that you know the European Union designed policies to keep Brazilian beef exports out of the European yeah. Union to protect their farmers. Yeah. Great for members of the club, not so great for emerging markets. ESG, environmental aid, anyone, principles. What did Groucho Marx say? Sure, I got principles. And if you don't like them, what other principles? Yeah. Okay, give me another, a bit of that give me another going smoke on. signal. You're really just set your hackles, your Scottish hackles Re thistling. Regulatory nationalism. I don't get it. I don't get it. And you alluded to this in part one far better than I could have ever tried to do, but just how do you create policies to protect European tech? Mm. You're missing the point. You're missing the point. European tech doesn't think with borders if it's doing its job correctly. So why should regulation think with borders as well? And I think that's a real dangerous thing. We need to take on the US tech giants. Why? Because they're tech, because they're giants, or because they're from the US, or all three. Like, just give me the rationale for why you're picking these battles. And it's the fact it's so easy to do political grandstanding on this issue that worries me. Yeah. It just means that somebody with a stupid pill inside them could potentially get a policy through the net that could actually do some serious damage to both US tech and European tech and everyone else because it's just a daft policy, like making algorithms transparent. It's just a daft policy from the get-go. Mm. So I think that I'm not very nationalistic as a person, but I worry when I see how politicians can use nationalism to really champion daft causes. Mm. And I saw a lot of that when I was in Brussels, which was a worry for me. Yeah. Well... It sounds like you had a less, less. <laughs> I had some great, I had some great fries. Yeah, I'm sure and you lovely waffles. Yeah, and I saw pictures of you and the family there. I'm sure you had some terrific chocolate, some excellent food. Enjoyed the sights of Brussels while you were Magritte. getting frustrated. For those who go, Magritte, the surrealist painter, if I pronounce his name correctly, that was a fantastic. I mean, there's some good stuff there. But I mean, just to round it off, like Brussels as a city, their number one shopping street, like their. I don't know what would be in 6th Avenue in Manhattan or Regent Street in London. Their number one shopping street, where the Apple store is, has six lanes of traffic, two trams, <laughs> down and outs everywhere, sirens blaring, unbearable noise levels, pollution, like you're tasting it. And that's where all the posh shops are. And it's just like, this place doesn't function. It doesn't function commercially. It doesn't function geographically. And it certainly doesn't function politically. I'm done with Brussels. Okay, well, I'll there you go. Brussels. We're not going to have another another podcast with Will visiting Brussels anytime in the very near future. But if you do fall asleep on the Eurostar to Brussels and stay asleep for an extra two hours, you wake up in Amsterdam. That's, that's the city. city. All right. Well, maybe we'll do the next one, whether the Dutch have a treat to apprise some of Brussels' <laughs> regulatory folks out of their slumber. And with that, thank you, trouble, Will. Trouble, live from a coffee shop. Well, yeah, yeah. Live from a coffee well, shop with Orange Sensibility. We, we haven't done that sort of thing on the podcast, but it's always a first time. 
Thanks again, Will, for your thoughts on Brussels. We'll be back next week. We have a series of guests coming up on Bubble Trouble, and we're looking forward to bringing them to you. Talk to you soon. If you are new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share it on your socials. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Nett at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Until next time, from my co-host Richard Kramer, I'm Will Page. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.